Okay, so uh, hello everybody. Welcome. I'm delighted to be joined by Victoria Wolf McIntyre, the director of uh, the new film The Flood. And uh, so welcome. It's very lovely to, to be chatting to you uh, from the other side of the planet. And uh, so yeah, if you could just introduce yourself. Um, and I'd, I'd really I'd like to get a bit, of in, a bit of interest and a bit of insight into your background in film. Um, obviously, this is your debut feature film, and I, I've seen in a couple of other interviews um, that you have a bit of an acting background as well. So, what's your kind of background in film and, and, and <laughs> your progress into into this into this film? Um, well, hello, Jordan, and thank you very much for having me. And thank you to uh, anybody who's taking the time to listen. I do appreciate it very much. Um, describing an acting background is probably a bit of a leap. Um, although, mind you, I did study drama and I did have a few professional gigs, but uh, let's just say I was more on the hammy scale rather than the, uh, you know, amazing performance like Alexis Lane gives in The Flood. Um, yeah, so it uh, became apparent that I was much better at telling the stories behind the camera than in front of the camera and I think when you're a kid and you're you're watching movies and you fall in love with cinema what you actually see are the actors you don't really think about or even understand everything that goes into making a film you just see the actors so you think oh that's how I can make films I'll be I'll get into acting um, but of course there's there's so many other fabulous facets to filmmaking. So really it was screenwriting is, is where I, I sort of moved into and, and then the natural progression of that for any sort of like controlling personality type is to move into directing then and uh, getting to do it the way you think it should be done. <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of how I got so I noticed as well, um, you had a short film in 2017, um, Mirror, I think it was called, um, which has a similar narrative mm -hmm. to The Flood. So was that kind of a, a, a test run for this film and you had the, the feature in mind or, or did the feature kind of, was that born out of the short film? Yeah, the feature was born, well, certainly inspired by the short film. Um, that that short film very much is centred on uh a First Nations soldier in World War II returning home and it, it, the things that happened to him in that film happened to almost all the Indigenous soldiers who, who served our country, shockingly. Um, and the Alexis Lane, who stars in The Flood, she had a very small role in Miro. She played Miro's wife. And she was so incredible, so powerful, just in a couple of scenes um, that I just wanted to write a feature as a kind of a vehicle for her. But also that film just really expanded my desire to speak really broadly about our nation and um, just race relations and where we're at and, and the injustice that is still to this day exists. So, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. And yeah, I've just mentioned Alexis Lane, uh, who plays Jara in, in The Flood, was was in that short film. Um, I just wanted to get your sort of um, maybe more behind the scenes in depth thoughts on her and also Shaka Cook, who plays Waru in, in The Flood. Sort of like, what was it like working with them? They give some really strong performances in this film. Um, like, what was it like directing them? Oh, it's... An absolute delight. I absolutely loved every second of it. And they just deliver unbelievably. You know, like they would, we didn't do take after take after take in the film. A lot of, of what you see is, is the first take or the second take. Um, sometimes we do three. And if there were technical 
issues to be sorted out, then there'd be more takes than that. But it was really only technical problems that caused us to do more because they were just there and in it and delivering. And then to, to have a, a bit of playroom up my sleeve, I would say to Shaka particularly, not so much Alexis because her character is, is different and the rawness that she was bringing to it I don't want to interfere with that at all. Yeah. But with Shaka, um, I would just say to him sometimes, just give me something just really, really different, something, mm-hmm. just a different take on this moment. And he would just come out with, with something unexpected. And quite often that made it into the film, you know. So okay. it, they're just so talented and and just fantastic to work with. So would you say you're... Dean Kerwin. Yeah. So would you say that as a... Yeah, yeah. So would you say that as a a director then, like, would you say you're more hands-on or hands-off in terms of, like, um, as a director, like, what's your approach really in terms of, you know, directing not just the the main cast but the supporting cast as well? Like, what's your approach with, with, with direction? Um, I, I want everyone to deliver their best and everybody needs a different approach to be able to do that. So there, for me, there's no blanket approach to any of it. It's really individually based and whatever the individual, whatever support they need to mm-hmm. get there or to, to express that, I'll, I'll do that. I don't have... I have, I don't, well, I'd like to think I don't have any ego around um, the, the, the process. It's whatever is required to get yeah. there is fine by me. And um, I'm, I'm very collaborative. I, I want to hear the best ideas from, from everybody and, and go with, you know, the, 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 the best idea wins. And quite often, my idea is not the best idea. So, in terms of this, <laughs> in terms of this film as well, you're obviously uh, the writer of the film as well. Um, so, in terms of collaboration and and reaching out to you know inspiration and, and getting inspiration from people on set and such, how how much of the film was any improvisation? Um, like, what was the writing process like as well? Because this film has a lot of you know different narrative strands that kind of interweave and and. Um, different subplots that some of them kind of go off completely on completely some of which kind of come back into the main narrative and, and overlap like what was it like writing that and, and as I say was there any sort of improvisation and such um, there was definitely um, like scripted changes mm-hmm. during the shoot which most often were determined because most of the films shot outdoors and we had this torrential flooding rains and like there were landslides. There was like these remote locations. So there were a lot of pressures on the time that we had. And and sometimes it it would just be a case of, well, you can't shoot that much. Mm -hmm. You need to condense the meat of it. So I would just do a rewrite on set. I'd send everybody for a cup of tea for 10 minutes and I'd just look at the scene and, and restructure it and and we'd go from there. And there wasn't a lot of improvisation in terms of dialogue or anything like that because it's not a very dialogue-driven film. There's not actually not a lot of dialogue in it. Yeah. Um, but... The way, because we were shooting one shots wherever possible, Kevin Scott, the DOP, and I have kind of been obsessed with with trying to do everything in a one shot if we Mm -hmm. can. Um, So we would get on set and then the actors would have their run and we would watch them how they're going to perform the scene and then we would figure out how we can best film it um, around their performance. So it, it was really collaborative and, and alive in the moment. 
of shooting it. And I think that that, that gives it a rawness or a, a real feel. Like I think you can feel like there's always just a bit of an edge through mm-hmm. it. Well, I think that there is. I mean, you might disagree with me and everybody, everyone will have their own opinion, but I think that, that you can feel a sense of rawness and realness. And I think that's because of that approach. And then in terms of, you know, you mentioned about cutting things out, was there anything specifically in the film that maybe was in the original script or you had ideas for in terms of including things that maybe had to be cut down? Anything specific that you had to cut out? Yes, there are a couple of heartbreaking scenes that I had to lose. Um, uh, but that they were more around just sort of more interesting moments that weren't really, I suppose, necessary to drive mm-hmm. the narrative forward. Okay. And, yeah, I think I think the most of it is in there, but you know there was some nighttime scenes that that I really loved and and yeah. some earlier stuff from earlier in the film in the mission um but in the end they just weren't working with how the film was emerging mm-hmm. for the film films determine themselves in a way you know that it feels right and then when it doesn't feel right you have to just let that go so so yeah just just come back to the one of the questions i asked which you kind of touched on a little bit there was the narratives obviously there's a lot of different subplots and a lot of different strands to the narrative what was it like managing all of those in the writing process and the direction Uh, well i'm i when i write it's a very I, I, it's sort of like, you, you know, when people talk about getting into the flow and it's almost like you channel it, 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 it just comes through. Mm-hmm. And I was just letting it come through. And yes, there are a lot of characters and there are a lot of subplots, but to me, that's what life is. We live that on a daily basis, you know, where we've got uh, 10 different subplots going with friends and family and this and that. And so, that just feels kind of natural and real to me, which is not typical of films. Like typically we're told you've got to have your three-act structure, you've got your central character, we travel that hero's journey. And that just wasn't right for this film. And I think that's also got a lot to do with the fact that it has such strong First Nation influence stories in there and um you know we we made it together and and that is more of a first nation approach to storytelling and um yeah the the film demanded that so yeah i just went with it yeah you've mentioned the the realism of the film in terms of it feels brutally authentic in parts um how was it like managing that obviously there's some quite brutal scenes in there in terms of sexual assault and you know you know straight up you know violence how was it like managing that in a, in a way which was you know authentic and, and really portrayed the the treatment of these people but also um was sort of managing the sensitivity of it as well how was that as a director oh, well Fortunately, I have a background in psychotherapy, so I'm very well versed in holding the space for that level of authenticity and emotionality to be present, and I'm extremely comfortable with it. It doesn't frighten me. It's actually where I I enjoy probably the, the meat of life the most, if you like, is being real, is sitting in those feelings um so it wasn't hard from that perspective or or difficult to manage and I guess if it didn't feel real we just did it till it did there was never going to be okay we're out of time that's it no I wouldn't I, I just would refuse and and that mm-hmm. didn't even happen anyway 
because yeah. we were on we were in in country on on land where these things happened with incredibly powerful indigenous elders a, a lot of whom are even have roles in the film and it really was like we were just suddenly back in time and we were all playing out our roles of history and it it was hard for the cast and crew mm-hmm. like they they really felt it and those days like the massacre scene um and the the prison scene they they really felt it and um we had support there we we were supporting each other and and we were an incredibly tight-knit and close film family if you like and everyone was there for each other on and off set and we all knew that what we were doing was certainly something important it felt really important to be telling this and we all felt honored to be granted the opportunity to tell it and that really carried us through yeah in terms of the the realism of it i've got like two to like two or three kind of questions that kind of stem off from that from that point so I'll, I'll ask these ones and hopefully we don't run out of time um firstly obviously you've got these like beautiful locations you know the production design the costume design you know you do feel like you're back in that period but at the same time it does almost feel timeless in places it kind of feels like there's this universal universality of it um and obviously as, as a british person there's implications um, for the the events of the film, um, and even parallels, you know, you could parallel some of the events of the film to the uh, the events that occurred in the United States and their treatment of Indigenous people. So it's quite, it does feel really of its time in terms of its production design and its costume design and the locations and such, but also feels kind of timeless and kind of universal at the same time. Was that kind mm. of your, was that kind of an intention, yeah. or does that is that just is yeah, that just something I've that's... totally the intention? Yeah, I wanted it to feel contemporary, so because it is still relevant, it is relevant for us all. It's fundamentally human stories around truth, reconciliation, forgiveness, revenge, redemption, all of those things that that we'll probably forever be dealing with in one way or another as a species. So, yeah, I wanted you to feel this. It's also like those otherworldly elements. The, I was just going to ask about the, those, yeah. The spirit world. Yeah, I was just yeah. going to ask about that. Yeah, like, yeah, well, that's really, I mean, honestly, I didn't know how that was going to be represented like how that was going to work I had it in the script but you know it wasn't until we were shooting doing the shootout scene like the big the big set piece at the end and when we turned up to shoot that and you know we're shooting it all out of order so it wasn't the end of the shoot when we were doing it but we turned up to shoot and everything was totally fogged out mm-hmm. and everyone like the first AD was panicking and, and this and that. And I just looked at it and I just thought, oh, this is the spirit world. It's here, you know, this. And so let's shoot this here, here, here. I want to shoot this, get these people in. And we just shot a whole bunch of different stuff. And that was the inspiration for being able to, to dissolve and, and transpose and, and travel between the worlds, mm-hmm. those particular worlds. So, so yeah, that's how yeah. that happened. It's yeah. quite interesting as well. You've got and the juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. that. Sorry, no, I was just going to say there's obviously the juxtaposition. You've got this kind of really brutally authentic portrayal of events whilst also kind of being a bit revisionist. I know you've mentioned Tarantino's influences on the film. But then you've also got this kind of element of like magical realism with the spirit world. There's a scene where someone opens a door and it kind of transports into a, another scene. There's these dreamlike segments and, and the 
almost angelic footage that we get of, of, of various characters and then the um the indigenous singing which kind of is in the present time but also feels kind of distinct and separate and almost dreamlike you've got these different elements of the film which what yeah what was the was that kind of like what was the intention there well to me the that spirit realm is as real as the real world it's just another form of experience or sensation and you know the the envelopes of existence are so close to each other and and that's something that i really like exploring and 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 opening up thoughts and and seeds around around that for an audience so um yeah i guess that's really that is actually really an expression of how i see things and and it was natural for me that it should be there in that way and also you know it's a real honoring of first nation spirit the 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 spirit world the the world of ancestors and history existing in the space that we're in you know and i think a lot of science fiction does that you know it's sort of like multiple realities and universes existing simultaneously mm-hmm. and this film is that and but those moments bleed through and we get to peek through those those envelopes and layers so yeah I guess you could blame science fiction for that too and then in terms of (laughs) in terms of the visuals obviously I know you've talked quite extensively in previous interviews about the about the wanners I don't want to necessarily ask you about that again because you probably talked about that you know, quite extensively. But in terms of some, some things I sort of met, uh, some things I noticed uh, particularly, which were quite striking, were um, there's a couple of moments of sort of really challenging eye contact in the film with the camera. What what, what was the thought process? Are you referring to Jarrah? So there's a couple of moments in, in flashback sequences or uh, Jarrah herself. Yeah, there's a couple of moments that I noticed throughout the film where it's almost like they're challenging the viewer. Really, it was being on set in the moment. It felt right and the thing to do. So I did it and I trusted in that. And the, this whole film is an exercise in trust. You've got mm-hmm. to have balls of steel to make a film like this because once you go down a rabbit hole like that, the knock-on effects throughout the film are kind of out of your control throughout the shoot. Yeah. And it's, it is brave. It's brave to go, all right, this, I'm, I'm getting a hit on this. This feels good to me. Let's do it. And you just don't know if you're going to have to can all of that because it doesn't work with everything else. Yeah. But I just trusted. I just, I just trusted my intuitive feeling and that's what I went for rightly or wrongly what's it been like obviously with the pandemic and things like that how has that affected releases I'm not sure when it released in other countries but um in terms of I guess release and and was production affected like when did you shoot this and and, and things like that Uh, no production wasn't affected but not long after we finished shooting, the Karawan megafire came and destroyed most of of the the places that you see in the film. So it kind of really is this archive of of an ancient Australian rainforest world that climate change has seen burnt to the ground, like is happening all around this planet. So, uh, and, and also Kangaroo Valley is my hometown where I live. So it was pretty tough at times in the um, edit suite, seeing the, the places that no longer exist, especially like land that, our land as well, that um, was the Papua New Guinea scenes, the jungle that was all here at our place, which was all destroyed. So, um, 
that that was tough and then not long later the pandemic came along so it hasn't been a great time to release an independent film that's for sure but um yeah I, I think I think this film's a slow burner it's not a razzle dazzle a million people see it at once and it's never heard of Again, I think it's a, a slow-burning film and I, I think maybe, well, certainly Australia probably isn't even ready for it yet. It's, they're not, it's, we're not ready to really confront what it's talking about yet, but hopefully we will be soon. And making films like this sort of pushes us closer towards that. Yeah. I mean, it's a real shame about the locations because some of those sort of, forest areas and just the the landscapes and such as i mentioned before the cinematography is, is beautiful but it almost feels mm. easy at times i guess when you when you have such beautiful locations like that well it might feel easy from the outside but boy it ain't easy getting you know a hundred people into these remote kind of areas to to shoot things and there's no phone coverage there's no like you know if the production office needed to tell us something it was like a, a runner was spending a, a two-hour return trip to get to us and so in, in some ways it was good because I, I got to go over get some overtime in without them being aware of it sometimes so that was uh, hmm. nice not much of course what? didn't do much overtime just a, just a bit yeah, in, ter in terms of in terms of ease, I didn't necessarily. I didn't mean in terms of production. I mean in terms of the cinematography. In terms of these beautiful oh, landscapes, yeah. it's, it's it feels easy, yeah. I guess, to capture that beauty. But the, the cinematography was was absolutely breathtaking throughout the film. Um, we touched on that earlier yeah. as well. You know, you do have to know which lenses to use, of course, though. To um, of course, yeah, to make. So, and we used vintage Leica lenses from the seventies. Right. So they were rehoused. So that's it gives it that really like shot on film quality and look mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I was going to mention. Actually, you mentioned the um, you mentioned being in the edit suite. There, there's a couple of there's a couple of um, sort of techniques, I suppose you could say, throughout the film. Where I was wondering whether they were baked into the script or whether they were kind of born out through the edit and in the edit. In terms of there's a couple of moments of um, in the action sequences, you kind of use repetition and uh, in, in, in other sequences, you use sort of replays of earlier sequences um, throughout the film, whether it be obviously the flashbacks to, to childhood, to childhood versions of the characters is obviously in the script. But there's a couple of moments where you re repeat footage or you um, really quickly. So in those, in those gunfights, um, maybe, you know, the cutting of, and the really sort of snappy editing. Were they, were they baked into the script or did they come out in the edit? They weren't baked into the script as such. I think they're baked into me. Um, so I, at the time of, of shooting things like bursting through doors and stuff like that, when we did that, I, I had in my mind, oh, yeah, I want to be doing those quick cuts and, and, and that kind of thing. So that was there in the process of shooting them. But a lot of it really came in the edit. And quite often it would be a technical mistake. And fortunately I'm just sitting there watching it and I see this technical mistake and it's like, I love this. This is what, you know, we need to do here yeah. and build that in. And, and once you start that, you start thinking about how you're putting the film together and how that can become thematically, visually through the film. So they inform each other. Yeah, of course, yeah. And another thing as well in that regard as well is there's a lot of overlapping footage in terms of maybe a character's walking through a forest and there's sort of... Um, the next scene is transposed or there's previous scenes with a moment with one of the police officers where the previous scenes are kind of amalgamating in his sort of consciousness. What, what was that again? Was that a very conscious from the onset or was that something you sort of brought in later on after you'd, after you'd shot the film? Well, that particularly was, 
definitely in the edit. And that was really driven because when he comes out of the police station and he leans up against the wall, it was it the wall looked like a cinema screen to me. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, well, there should be imagery on that that reflects where he's at or what he's experiencing or what he's not wanting to see mm-hmm. and should be forced to see it. Right. You know, I, I think people, I, I might've done a bit too much forcing of people to see things in this film perhaps, but um, yeah, that was, that definitely sprang from just seeing that, that blank wall and, and wanting to project something onto it. And a lot of the, the transitions or the overlays that first started as a technical error, but I, I just grabbed onto it and realized that this is a way to, to show the bleed through of those worlds that I was talking about, you know, and that history, history lingers. It lives in us and around us Mm -hmm. still, you know, it's inescapable which is why we need to address it. Yeah. There's some really striking images, actually, um, two ones that really stuck in my mind. There's one where there's a crucifix. I think it's in a church, I believe. I'm not too sure when it was, but there's a, I think it's a crucifix, which you kind of transpose onto the next scene as the characters are moving through the forest, I think. And there's another moment as well where Jara is in the spirit realm in the kind of white attire and... Um, it, again, it lingers in, in sort of almost in the sky. It felt quite, as I mentioned before, it felt quite mm. angelic, dreamlike. Um, so it, yeah, those moments really stuck with me. There was this visual images at least. And again, as, as well with the edit, mm. there's a moment as well in the film where it kind of cuts from, it, there's this really jarring cut from, there's a sign which says no dogs. And I think it says no blacks or something like that. And then it cuts. And obviously that's the first image we see is one of the women holding a dog. Um, which obviously sets up the the latest. You know, you, you say about um, maybe you try and show too much, but I think sometimes things like that are quite effective as really striking images, as I mentioned. Then sometimes things like that need to be shown quite quite strikingly. Mm, yeah. Well, um, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so when you Jara in the white dress or in those those sort of like moments that you're talking about for me that's always been her her higher self her her spirit self whatever you want to call that that is actually carrying her through her darkness Mm-hmm. So it's she doesn't even realize that she is there for herself yet. Yeah. And it's when we see that colonial dance scene mm-hmm. and she sees herself looking at herself, that's yeah. when she starts to wake up. Yeah. I mean, she and go, she, yeah. No. Yeah. She knows that she needs to address it at that point. Otherwise, yeah. madness comes. Yeah, I mean, she mentions at one point in the film as well. Um, I think it's—is it Seamus? His name. Um, one of the one of the the characters. Is it? I can't remember who it was. Who I think it was him. Um, but anyway, Jara basically says, "No, you—they they didn't break me. They made me." And it's this kind of, mm. like, as you mentioned, and that kind of gets drawn out and then leads into that sort of self-realization of, of that of that realm almost. Mm, yeah, it really does. And I love that. I love seeing that because I I really feel that that is what happens so mm-hmm. often with people who've yeah. experienced trauma that that when they you know that you can this you can collapse or you can lash out when you've experienced trauma or you can just leave the building and she definitely chooses to lash out and then she has to process that and grow through that and that's what those images are all about. So I'm very thrilled that you've picked up on that. Also, there's a couple of moments in the film where I almost felt like it wasn't 
what were being what was being shown on screen wasn't necessarily the the reality of the situation. I mean, it might it might have just been I don't know maybe I misinterpreted or maybe the way the scene was was came across was maybe a bit more open ended I guess. But for instance, the, the one particular scene I'm thinking of is the scene in the bar where Jara goes in and um you know kills the the men in the bar. It almost feels like it's like an idealized version of what she wants because it's kind of no reaction from the men. They don't really look to draw arms or defend themselves. It almost feels like, I mean, you've talked about the Tarantino influences. It almost feels like she goes in there and that's in her head what she wants to do. And, you know, maybe that's not necessarily the reality of the situation. Is that, is that, is that am, I, am I reading too much into that or? Maybe it didn't go down quite how we saw it. I mean, ultimately, the guys are dead, but I wanted us to see it in that that kick-ass, stylized, joyful yeah. kind of way. Mm-hmm. I want us to enjoy that moment yeah. and relish that violence because then we also have to confront the result of that, which mm-hmm. is what happens after she's done it. Yeah. And she's standing and she realises that she has become evil herself, mm-hmm. which again, I'm not quite sure if I, if, we, if I mentioned that earlier, but, yeah, I really think we, we don't get to see that often enough in film you know so often violence is just perpetrated and it's either funny or stylish or brutal but we just move on mm-hmm. whereas that moment of her after she's done that and realizing that it hasn't eased her pain at all it's only caused more pain to me that is an incredible moment in the film and the whole, it was worth making the whole film just for that, for people just to see that. Yeah, and I think that maybe the her react her reaction to that scene, if you take the scene as a li- literally, her reaction to that might be a bit jarring. Um, but yeah, as, as you say, when she kind of has to come to terms with that realization, acceptance that you know what she's done, it does kind of you know her bef- and and and. Uh, the performances in that scene as well, following the the violence, is is incredible. I think this that was another one take um, afterwards in terms of the reaction um, of, uh, mm. of of her. So yeah, that was a really really powerful moment, as you say. Yeah, yeah, I'm um, pretty pleased with that. Yeah. Also, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned the. Just coming back to the technical aspects, you mentioned the the lenses that you use, the vintage lenses, um, and you know I think we've run well done talked extensively about the cinematography of the film, but in terms of the the color grade and the edits, the post production of, of the visuals, it felt really sort of raw and authentic. It didn't feel like you tampered with the visuals too much. I feel like in some of the moments, especially, it could have been quite easy to go in afterwards and put a, just a dark filter, like a dark wash over the, over the visuals, you know, to, you know, hi- like heighten the mood, the darkness of the story. But even in the dark moments, um, you, it, it feels really raw and sort of gritty and authentic. Um, yeah, just, I thought that was, that really stood out as well, the visuals and the way it was graded. Yeah, well, um, we had, an exceptional <clears throat> artist doing the grading who, um, you know, has done some huge Hollywood films. So we were really lucky to get Billy to do it. And, um, you know, he, Kevin, the DOP and I, um, you know, we're just in all the sessions together and, and they gang up on me all the time because directors always want to see everything, you know, I want to see that look in their eyes and like no you'll ruin the the sort of contrast and the this and the that and so I just deferred to the experts and I picked my battles sometimes I was like no I absolutely insist that I need to see this part of it more Mm -hmm. and so you know they 
acquiesce to that because I would go with with their recommendations 99% of the time. And, and of course, you know, deferring to the experts is always the best thing to do when you're making a film, I think. Um, speaking of experts, I, we mentioned about your directing approach earlier and how it's kind of, you know, t- catered and tailored towards the actors themselves rather than kind of a blanket approach. Um, in those one in those one take sort of one as you know segments in the film how did you approach those as from they must be quite challenging to do obviously um and you mentioned you know the majority of the film was done in you know just a handful of takes there wasn't many you know retakes and retakes and retakes how how did you approach those specific one shot segments in terms of in terms of direction because what we see on what we see in the final version of the film those one shot segments are some of the strongest performances, which like strongest moments of performance, which, you know, you think, you know, one side, it could be easy because they were more immersed in the experience, but also it's, you know, probably a lot harder actually as an actor to, you know, be committed and in character and really give a strong performance in those long moments. Yeah. They didn't seem to have any trouble. (laughs) They just, you know, they did it. And I think that too was because we didn't mark the ground and say you have to be here for this moment or that moment. We let them play it out and we worked around them. So right. they were, and and it was obviously it was choreographed because it's it is like a dance the cameras working with their movements Mm -hmm. but they were the ones who initiated where they were going to move and how it was going to be well of course we do things like you know we just need you to be angled a little bit more this way or that way Mm -hmm. at times but because it was natural for their performance I think that made it you know easier for them and we did the hard the hard yards of of working around them rather than vice versa, which I think yeah. happens quite a bit. Yeah. Um, in terms of the score as well, um, like how was that? Was was the score produced in post or was it produced alongside the film? Like it it really sort of complements some of those moments, especially the really sort of reflective and meditative moments of the film. Um, in especially the spirit world, but um, there's some really sort of beautiful, like slow, reflective pieces. Were they sort of composed in, like once the film was completed, or were they, you know, were you working with those in mind alongside the production? Well, it's really interesting actually because Petra Salcho, who's the composer, she and I have been friends forever, and everything I've ever made or been involved with you know, she's done the music for. So we have a very, very strong creative bond and relationship. And normally Petra writes music off the script and we would play that for actors or, you know, the crew even at Mm -hmm. times or sometimes have it actually on set. Um, But on this film she didn't do that and it's always just again, an entirely naturally led process that we work to. So um, she did have to do like the right right songs actually for being in the film, like the gang song, like Marjorie's song in the pub, um, Mm -hmm. which I I love talking about the, the no dogs, no blacks, like, and that's actually Petra, the composer, who plays Marjorie singing that right. song. Okay. And, and that's my dog, Bob, in her arms. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> um, so she had to write songs to actually be in the film. But for the first time ever, she actually didn't write music until we would had had started the editing process and then we were able to sort of um 
talk about it and and build it. It was a different process for for us in this film, but I just totally trust her, and um, I had no doubt at all that brilliance was going to come at the right moments, and you know it did. As far as I'm concerned, like some of that music is just stunning. Like that waterhole scene, yeah, which yeah. is also um, a little homage to um, Stanley Kubrick there with the Barry Lyndon candles. Oh, yeah, that yeah, was I like, see, yeah, I see, yeah, yeah, like they were real candles that, yeah, yeah. God, the production design team were on canoes out there getting all those candles up lit and. So uh, yeah, and and the I call it the love tree scene with Alexis and or with Jarrah and Waru on the the cliff top with the wind. Mm-hmm. Like when that music kicks in, there it's just it's her healing herself in that moment, and I I, I just think it's so so beautiful, you know. And it's interesting. People always talk about the the violence in the film which really is not a great percentage of the film mm-hmm. it's a small percentage but people don't talk so much about just these incredible spiritual and loving and poetic and lyrical moments that infuse so much of it it's 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 really interesting what what people hone in on. I yeah. don't know why that is. Um, maybe because it, it is so raw and, and hard to watch, but maybe also it's hard for people to focus on love and healing equally. Mm. Maybe it's equally hard. Yeah. Um, They're just, kind of the extreme. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got two kind of points that are very different, so I'll I'll kind of mention them both and you can maybe pick up on whichever one you find to be more uh, more intriguing for you. Um, so in terms of this, come back to the score just for a second, um, there's like a song that's used towards the end of the film. Um, you mentioned that there's some songs specifically written uh, for the film. There was a song used towards the end of the film where the, the writing... Um, they're in the car and there's also some some horses riding alongside. It's sort of just before the yeah. final set piece. Was that song written in yeah. the film specifically? Yes, yes. When when um uh the door op- when the door opens, like in the edit, when the door opens, I just I was bored by seeing how that is normally handled I Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to do what is normally expected by a door opening and I also wanted to get into that heightened world of Gerald's mind like his absolute just bullshit belief in himself and Mm -hmm. all this stuff and his fantasy, like this fantasy of who he is. And so it was his moment in the film to to express and and play with that. And um, I had a song in my mind that, uh, like a mainstream song that I, um, you know, wanted to use. But in the end I thought, why do I want to do that when I've got a composer who specialises in writing pop songs? <laughs> and um, I, I, we sort of talked about what I was really wanting for that and she came up with that song and that's her singing the song too. So. Okay. Yeah, it feels um, like a really, as I mentioned, there's a lot of juxtaposition in the film, whether it's the reality versus fantasy or uh, the authenticity versus the, the kind of... Um, you know, the bit more surreal moments in the film. And that was one of them that really struck me. I think I mentioned earlier that door scene. It kind of cuts to this really sort of almost contemporary sounding. um, It's almost a bizarre song to use in that moment, (laughs) but it works really well for his kind of strange worldview. Yeah. Yeah. And 
all the characters get their their moment in this the 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 sort of supporting players you know they all get something that really informs them or speaks about them or where they're at and yeah that was Gerald's and I don't know if you noticed but there's even um the tweeting birds from um Snow White are also layered in to the sound of that so just to really enhance that sense of of his fantasy world you know I didn't even notice that I'll have to listen, listen back to it and and uh and try and I'm trying to pick those out yeah the other bit of um sound design that I really love is when he is sort of like in that devilish mode and he's breathing and he's just ramping up and there's that layers of sound coming in over the top Mm -hmm. of each other um I actually said to the sound designer just I want it to be like a Mad Max car, you know, something like really grunty, like from the original Mad Max. And she said, oh, yeah, I worked on that. I think I've got those tapes still from the original V8s. And she pulled out the original Mad Max V8s tapes and she created that soundscape from those tapes. So there you go. I've never told anyone that. That is impressive. I like that. That's uh, an exclusive. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, when you're in the cinema and that comes on and you're adjusting that full surround sound, it just hits you in the guts and just rises up through your body and it's just like, oh, you just want to scream. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm so sad it's just not getting to be in cinemas. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've been to um, I've been to a few... I've been to, well, recently I was at a, a short film festival and uh, it was, there's a lot of people there who's either f- their first shorts or their first festivals and having even just short films being aired in the cinema. It's just a completely different experience. And, you know, obviously we've had a, yeah. a year and, and a year and a half with, with no cinemas. I'm not sure. I know, I know Australia was in lockdown for, for quite significantly longer than uh, the UK was. So it must be quite a shame actually for, for the cinema experience, really not having the opportunity to, you know, to have that cinema experience. Yeah, well, we managed a short cinema run, which was something just sort of like wedged into a little window between lockdowns. <clears throat> but um, yeah, I, I wish that you guys could experience it in the cinema. It's really worth doing. I'm happy to, to, um, get our distributors to supply DCP if anybody wants to uh, run it. <laughs> um, okay, so just for another, I know it's late and I've, I've had you for long enough now, um, but just, just to wrap up really, there's a couple of moments in the film which um, I've been like looking at like reviews and such online um, just, just to get a general sort of consensus of, of where everyone else is at with the film and how it's been received. There's a couple of moments in the film which um, have really st- stuck with people and really resonated and been really striking. And then there's a couple of moments in the film which may be a bit more challenging to um, not accept, but challenging to sort of come to terms with or challenging to... Um, what's the word? Yeah, just, just, just kind of seeing on screen, there's a couple of moments in the film. Um, I think one of the one of the main potential, like criticisms of the film I guess you could say is this kind of redemptive arc for one of the um, attackers um, that's shown on the screen and you mentioned earlier in the interview that you wanted to show you know not, not just the bad but the good the potential for violence and harm but also this potential for healing growth and and redemption so was that something that anyone ever maybe challenged you on or um, ever spoke to you about in the in the writing process or you know in the in production or, or was that something that you know everyone was really um on board with in in the production yeah everyone was on board with that um particularly uh, so in the process of writing it i worked with um gunter wang Um, which is a female elders artisan collective and it's uh, maybe 
10, 15 female elders from all different nations. Um, and so we, we went and, and just did a lot of script work, like just going through it, reading it, um, just getting where they're at with it. And it's really important to them to promote the healing aspects of not not only the film but our nation and we're not going to do that without forgiveness and compassion and understanding and having the vision of people being able to change and grow and I mean I, I don't know what's more important to that for the health and well-being of our planet and people than finding that way to understand and and heal and move through those spaces with each other. So, um, yeah, look, it's a very divisive film. People, some people absolutely hate it and some people absolutely love it. There isn't a lot of, you know, meh. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it produces strong reactions and it's not a normal film. It doesn't follow, oh, this is a classic three-act structure and it's a hero's journey following one hero from beginning to end. And it's it's not that. It's messy. It's life. It's mm-hmm. like it really is. Yeah. So I, I can understand people who like things to be the way that they're used to or the way they think they should be, that I can understand them not liking it. And I'm okay with that because I think it's how it wants to be and how it is and and I I love it. So I'm just really happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just had a just had a little brainwave actually when you were talking about it there. Um it kind of reminds me, I'm not sure if you've seen the film The Burial of Kojo. No, I haven't seen it. Okay, that. so I, I'm, I'm having a mind blank actually here. I've forgotten the name of the director, but it's um, it's an African story about, um, it's a, kind of a story about stories. Um, and it's kind of presented mm-hmm. as this unfolding, um, it's a woman telling her childhood recollections of her parents telling her stories. And it, and it has similar, now I've thought about it, it kind of has similar, um, very loose narrative or very d- divided narratives. It has these kind of surreal moments of, um, there's this like bird-like creature that is kind of haunting this child um, and these dream-like qualities that are kind of present in your film. So I, I was just wondering if you'd seen that film because it kind of, when you were talking about that film, that kind of made me think of that film a little bit actually. Yeah, well, I'd like to see that film. Yeah, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's a Netflix original, but it, I believe it's on Netflix in most countries. Um, I, I'm going to have to... The Burial Okay. Yeah, I'm going to have to double check this now because I've... It's going to really... Okay, so the director is called Blitz Bazawuli, um, and he was one of the co-directors of Black is King, which was the Beyonce um, film, if you've heard of that. Um, he was one of the co-directors of that. Um, I believe it's on Netflix. Yeah, it's on Netflix in Australia. Um, ah, fantastic! Nice. And it's You're a very, it's a, it, only an eighty-minute, eighty-minute film. So it's again, it's a, it's very divisive. Some people absolutely love it um, and think it's you know amazing, and some people, you know, I, I guess it's more a kind of perspective of of their view rather than the film itself in terms of whether they're more willing to accept those more surreal. Um, and more mm. fantastical elements that are kind of borne out, even though it's a very authentic and, and sort of character-driven story. Um, but yeah, I, did, I just had a, a connection. Mm. Just made the connection there. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna... yeah, well, people, I think um, one of the professors of film studies here who wrote a small piece on the film, I think she sort of talked about it being like a fever dream as well you know yeah I, I've, I i um, use that term to refer to a film recently as well which was kind of again uh, very surreal and 
hypnotic and almost like a hallucinogenic dream. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of those yeah. films recently. Well, look, actually. I, I just, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it's because, like myself, um, love it or hate it or however you feel about it, it's not boring, and I'm pretty tired of just knowing what's going to happen in a film from the first couple of scenes Mm -hmm. to be able to know blah 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 and that's how it's going to end you know I I I don't want to make films like that I want to I want to make films that are unexpected and surprising and challenging and and rich and bold yeah, you balanced the action and the drama really well in this film. You're never bored. And even thinking of now how you'd categorise it, you know, it's got drama and action, but it's also got horror and fantasy, and it's almost like a really hybrid of different genres. But at the same time, it feels, it feels I don't know, familiar, but also different at the same time. Yeah, it's a nightmare for the um, distributors. you know to be able to categorize something to sell it yeah and uh this is really hard to categorize yeah okay so i'll let you go was one final question before i do um i think in one interview i'm not sure if you've mentioned this elsewhere but i I, I was reading one interview um that you'd already done uh where you mentioned that this could you know you you want to make this film because you felt like it could potentially be your one and only feature if I'm not mistaken, that's something you said in an interview. Well, I think I probably said um, it may be the only chance I ever get to make a feature. Yeah. You know, you just never know. So I just wanted to absolutely go for it Yeah. and make the film I wanted to make. And, and at least did. I can. Yeah. And I did. And even if I never get to make another film again, I'm just so thrilled to have made this one. Yeah. And so have you got any have you got any projects in the in the works in terms of writing or directing or have you, have you got any plans or projects in, in the go or I do, I do, but um it has been a very difficult time for independent filmmakers to get yeah. their projects up that's um but we're we're sort of pushing ahead i've got a couple i'm not sure which one will be the first one that ends up falling over it's like into to being made um but uh i'm 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 done with the really brutal hard stuff for the time being i feel okay. like i've really I've said, I've mm-hmm. said all I need to say with yeah. this film. Um, the next one is uh, the one I really want to make next. I'm not, I can't even tell you the name because it is, it's a bit of a title like Snakes on a Plane, you know, the moment you say it, like there's the film, you know exactly. Okay. Or you've got a picture of what you're and I'm, I'm not willing to, to blow that out at yeah, this stage, but yeah. It's big and bold and f- super fun and really subversive and, okay. um, yeah, action, lots of heart, love story, um, but not a traditional love story in any sense of the word. And it's about multi-generational female relationships but okay. in a kick-ass action, fun context. Okay. Sounds interesting. Yeah. I always like my action to have meaning. Yeah. Even if it's fun, you know, fun action can still have meaning. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, actually, I did just think of one question because I asked this to everyone at the short film <laughs> festival. <laughs> I asked this to everyone at the short film festival and it actually got with some interesting responses. So um Obviously, we just come out of, you know, well, we're still in the pandemic, but we're, you know, slowly, at least in the UK, moving out of uh, lockdowns and, and stuff like that and getting back to some kind of normality. And obviously it's had a big impact on, on the filmmaking industry. What advice would you give to up and coming independent filmmakers like yourself who want to get involved in film, especially at this stage at the moment? What advice would you give to them? 
Mm, it's a hard one. Um, you know, I was talking to a finance guy the other day and he said to me, he thought I was thinking too small about the next film because I was talking not about the film I was just telling you about, but I was talking about a smaller film that felt like it was doable in this sort of like COVID-y times, you know, mm -hmm. it was it's a small cast, limited location, really handleable. And he said, um, you know, businesses are going gangbusters through COVID. He said, it's, he said, I've had the best two years of business that I've ever had. And he said, you've got to liberate yourself from this mindset that, you know, it's hard or it's tough. And he said, go for your big vision. You, you need to go for the big vision. Don't, don't sell yourself short just because of what's happening. And he really did give me a bit of a kick up the behind. And I, I just thought, yeah, I have been buying into my fears and limitations and, and, you know, oh, it's going to be so hard or it's just impossible. And that mindset is not how you get a film made. You have to believe and go for it and go big and go hard. And that's what we did to, to make the flood and everything that we've ever made really. Um, so I guess I will pass that, that kick up the behind forward from him to just go don't 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 go low go high and really push it and go for it because that's what people are attracted to big vision yeah well that's a great and piece of advice you... yeah that's a great piece of advice <laughs> yeah. that's actually quite an interesting piece of advice but that's, that's one thing i've not actually heard anyone say to that question so that's actually quite a quite a unique and interesting perspective so that's that's really it's really um a really great answer so thank you for your time i know i've taken up more, almost uh, in total more than an hour now so um yeah oh well there, there you go see how much filmmakers love talking about their films so i could probably talk to you about and another, it's for another always hour. a great pleasure yeah <laughs> <laughs> well thanks john i've yeah, no really worries. appreciated your interest and your questions. It's been a really great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Victoria. And uh, thank you. And uh, yeah, go watch, go watch the flood. Yeah. And uh, let me know what you think. <laughs>